Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben, and this is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope. And tonight's guest is a special person who's got some great ideas, and this is Jim Stewart. Welcome, Jim. Thank you for the invite. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you for coming and sharing some time with us. So, Jim, I understand that recently you you did a march on the State House, and you helped organize it. Is that correct? Yeah, but back in April, we encourage people who are in recovery, people who are still struggling with substance use disorder, family members who have lost loved ones to overdose, other people who are concerned about the ongoing overdose crisis or epidemic, whatever you want to call it in the Commonwealth, to, to join us up at the State House so that we could uh, you know, try to bring more attention to the fact that you know each year for the last couple of years, about 2,000 people Last year was, uh, I think, 2,300 people uh, died from, from overdose. And uh, it doesn't seem to be anything that public officials at the state, federal, or local level want to do anything other than sort of wring their hands about. And meanwhile, people who you know we all care about, some of us who are related to in different ways, you know, continue to die behind dumpsters or in the basement of their family members' homes or in the back seats of cars, uh, because um, they have this uh, affliction, this issue in their life, and there's no safe and healthy way for them to address it and get any kind of stability in their life so that they can start thinking about making different decisions about how they want to maybe move forward and not be so at the mercy of this sort of chaotic challenge that they have in their life. Because uh, anytime they seem to go and ask for help, they're they're stigmatized and they're assumed to be trying to just, you know, score drugs or um, take advantage of people. And it makes it really hard for people to continue to try to engage and get help they might want and need because of the way that they're treated. Um, and, you know, of course, the biggest problem is that if they step forward, they run the risk of being arrested. Um, and, you know, nobody does really well getting off out of a, uh, a substance use issue if they're just incarcerated you know they're they're just that's just not the way people deal with challenges in their life and um, if you look at what we do with folks who have uh, challenges around um you know say nicotine you know we have a very patient and understanding approach to this we um we give them patches we give them medication we understand that's a reoccurring or relapsing um condition and we um accept that and, and we offer support and encouragement not like well sorry you know we offered you some hope uh, some help you you didn't didn't make it didn't work this time so you know you lose and so we are all um trying to get people to pay attention to these things called overdose prevention centers they're um sometimes known as safe consumption centers or um injection safe injection facilities and they involve um providing a safe um, clean area so that people who have obtained drugs someplace else, not at the center, can come in and um, 
use the substance under supervision so that if there is an overdose, it can be reversed. And so often what what happens in these situations as well is that the, the folks who are observing it notice that people have never really learned how to um, self-inject in a safe and healthy way. And so they wind up um, getting all these problems with abscesses and other issues. And they compounds the fact that, you know, they have this addiction, but then they have all these um, injection related infections that you know, make the condition even more complicated. And so uh, these safe or, or overdose prevention centers, they also um, are kind of a gateway for people to get directed towards other services that will bring stability into their life and hopefully result in them becoming reintegrated into their families and into the communities that they've sort of dropped out of. So we went up there, we were hoping we'd be able to get into a conversation with Governor Healy at an event she was doing in one of the halls at the state house. It was an occasion to celebrate agriculture in Massachusetts. So we said we were going to go up there and try to talk to the governor. And it appears they uh, found out we were going to be there and they wouldn't let the governor go. They kept her in her office. And so when it looked like we weren't going to be able to uh, interact with the governor, we went upstairs to uh, her office and tried to bring the message to the people who work with her that you know, we need her to be more proactive, to, to take action, to bring hope and, and safety to people who were literally d dying on the streets or alone in situations that are just sort of wretched and miserable that nobody should want to have. Uh, we, we shouldn't want, want these situations on anybody, especially if someone who's got a, an affliction that can be treated. You know, over the decades, substance use disorder has become recognized as a complex but relatively straightforward situation. There's biochemical issues that go on in it. It does respond well to medication and other forms of intervention if people have an opportunity to, to get engaged with it. And uh, we, we just don't feel like we're getting any kind of leadership from the, either from the governor or from the House of Representatives or from uh, the state Senate on addressing this thing. It's uh, for the last eight years, we've been trying to get bills through the legislature that would allow safe consumption overdose prevention centers to be legal in Massachusetts. And we managed to get them all the way through the committees. And then we get to the uh, sort of the last days of a legislative session. And all of a sudden, the speaker says, um, Speaker Mariano or somebody else over in the Senate says, well, you know, we, we think we, we think we need more information about this. And um for those of us who've been doing this work, you know, the, the information is already out there and it isn't um, just a, available in a, you know, a small community of public health or medical professionals. I mean, it's uh, part of public policy in places like Canada, uh, Mexico, uh, Spain, France, Germany. I mean, these things have been in um online and providing services to people who use drugs in these other countries. And these are, you know, uh, westernized, um, developed uh, economies. They're not like small, um, uh, underdeveloped. Um, I can't think of the word I want, but yeah, well, I was going to say that I think yeah. I think you, you've got a lot of issues that you the um, that you're up against. One the biggest one is that um, Heroin is still federally illegal, yep. state 
it illegal so that um, I think that they don't want to take that, make that, take that chance of having somebody in the building with shooting up heroin. And, um, and I get it. I, I, I get it because they right away, people think, oh, well, you know, uh, we don't want that in our neighborhood. So you gotta, you gotta get it into an area where it, it's acceptable. And number yep. one and number two, you've got to deal with the, it, it's against federal law. So that's why, that's why I know that, um, Governor Baker wouldn't go for it because he was afraid that it was against federal law. So he didn't want to approve it and then say that he's bucking the system, you know? Well, um, but you know, Tony, and I, I know you're, you already know this, but you know, it's still against federal law for people to be buying marijuana on the, the corner of uh, Brattle and Mass Ave in Cambridge or um, in downtown Boston, but Massachusetts does it. Um, and, so, you know, it's still not legal for uh, naloxone to be distributed, or it wasn't until recently on a on a nationwide basis. But Massachusetts legalized that too. You know, so there there is a precedent for Massachusetts sort of saying, "Hey, these are important things um, that need to happen," and um, the Constitution is very clear that you know the states have a right to take steps that they feel are necessary to promote the well-being of their their population. And we seem to have been willing to exercise that um, when it comes to certain issues like medical cannabis or uh, other things, but somehow we're not ready to do it for people who are you know, literally you know, dying because they're not able to access um, proven and effective treatment that could save their lives and reintegrate them into the communities and families that they've uh, sort of fallen out of contact with. and. I don't quite understand why um, why people think that people who use drugs are in and of themselves a threat to their community. In places in Toronto, um, other places um, around uh, Canada, and now in New York City, there are two facilities operating in New York City. Um, they're right across the street from some childcare center. I mean, there are no issues. There are people who in the neighborhood who grumble about it, but you know they've had to sort of concede that having people receive this life-saving service hasn't in any way negatively affected you know, their lives. And so I, we, we just really feel like the uh, attitudes people have about who people who use drugs are and what will help them is just really out of touch with what the facts are. And people are very sort of information resistant when it comes to this. And that's why our frustration with elected and appointed officials is is so intense because leadership requires people to be willing to step out a little bit and say, hey, yeah, I understand you have these fears about these people, but they're just that, fears. And, you know, the facts uh, make it clear that these services are beneficial, not only for the people who consume the service, but they also bring benefits to the neighborhoods and communities that host them. The facilities I mentioned in New York, the one that's in Harlem, there's a park across from where the facility is. And uh, that park um, used to correct, collect about 13,000 discarded needles a month. Um, and that's what the Department of Public Works said. It wasn't uh, some community group saying that. It was Department of uh, Public Works for the city of New York. After the uh, Safe, and Co Safe Consumption or Overdose Protection Center 
opened in that neighborhood, the amount of needles uh, discarded in that park went down to 1,000. And so I, I'm not good with numbers. Um, uh, that's a, a major decrease. That's, you know, that's like- Yeah, a, it's about 90% decrease. 90% decrease. Now, there's still 1,000 needles. That's not good, right? But it's just not the case that these facilities bring issues that are disruptive to the community. Um, it, we Again, the, the facts, if people want to look at them, make it possible. If they sort of have the eyes and ears to hear the facts and see see the, the data that these things can be win-win. You know, the big win is, of course, people's lives are saved. But it also, you know, creates a public benefit for everyone. And uh, we just wish public officials would, you know, take more of a leadership role in ex explaining to people why these things make sense, you know, because often it's not until someone loses a loved one that the sort of scales come off their eyes. They're like, yeah, if, you know, they could have gone someplace and be treated with, you know, respect and compassion, um, they might still be alive now. And, you know, some of it is just seems so common sense, but, you know, until it sort of impacts people in a, you know, a profound personal way, they just seem to not want to entertain the idea. So I'm rambling on. Sorry, I'm supposed to be a conversation. That's okay. Right? So, so Jim, what would you put in? What would give me an idea? What would be the in, inside of the safe injection facility? Like, what what would you have in there? Well, the ones in New York, um, they have you know sort of an intake area where people just you know sort of do paperwork just like you do when you go to the dentist or something, right? And then there's a, a, a room where there's uh, usually half a dozen, sometimes a, a little more, a little less um, stalls with chairs with uh, um, a, access to clean supplies that, so people can administer the drug in you know, a safe, hygienic uh, way. Um, they're overseen by people in the facility. Um, they, of course, if there's a uh, an overdose, they can, you know, revive the person. Um, once the uh, the session of, you know, supervision is over, there's usually a uh, a place that sometimes is called a chill out room or a safe space. Different places call it different things where people, you know, um, have a moment to sort of get over the heavy sedation that happens when you inject drugs um, like fentanyl and, and heroin, and then. That person, you know, there's a, there's another space um, adjacent to that where people have an opportunity to um, become engaged in, engaged in other services. Um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a model that is very similar to syringe exchanges, right? If, uh, if, if you have a what they call a brick and mortar syringe exchange where people can, you know, turn in dirty needles, get clean ones, um, they they try to make it possible for people to um, sort of change their habits in uh, sort of profound ways, not just like, you know, dirty needle, clean needle. Here we go. You know, they give people an opportunity to, you know, talk to, you know, professionals who might be able to help them find uh, access to uh, things that are additionally complicating their lives. You know, a lot of times people who are uh, having problems with substance use disorder, they wind up being homeless. And uh, a big way to help someone not feel like they have no other choice other than getting loaded on the street is to say, let's get you off the street, right? Because uh, you can make better decisions if you're not sort of trying to 
you know, wander around, find someplace safe to, you know, spend the night or avoid being um, hassled by law enforcement or merchants who don't want to have people's have people hanging around who, you know, going to scare off the customers or the tourists, you know? So they're, they're not, a lot of times people think of these places as like just uh, government sanctioned shooting galleries, right? And that's not the case. It's a, a, I guess maybe it's not fair to call it clinical, but you know, it's a, a, it's a professional environment where people who have a specific issue are engaged um, and provided with options to, to, deal with the, the challenge they have in their life. You know, people have different, you know, people who don't have substance use disorder, but have mental health issues or other things, you know, they, um, they are, are treated in a certain way. People recognize that treating someone like they're some outlaw um, parasite on society doesn't help them change the way they live their life. They're treated um, with some respect and, and some basic compassion. And so it's not an unusual model. It's just, um, you know, the specific audiences of people who have a substance use disorder. But, I, you know, I know from working in homeless shelters, um, dealing with folks who have chronic mental illness, uh, it's, it's the same, same kind of issue that if you engage with someone and you make them accept, make them have to accept the stigma of being, you know, psychologically or psychiatrically broken, you know, it, it's demoralizing, it's degrading. And, you know, people are less likely to risk making some changes in their life that they're being treated like they don't really count as a, a member of the community or even as kind of an adult. So maybe it's a good time, Jim, that you to let the audience know what you do for work um, in your everyday life is that you do run a, a, a work at a homeless shelter. Is that correct? Yeah, about a little over 35 years ago, um, First Church in Cambridge uh, opened a shelter for homeless people to try to, you know, make clear that they were serious about their commitment to helping people who, you know, were uh, experiencing, um, you know, a very disruptive problem. They had no place to live. And rather than just say, oh, oh, we care about you. We, you know, we'll pray for you. We wanted to say, yeah, come on into our building. Um, you know, we can't give everybody their own room, but you know, we'll try to keep you safe and we'll try to keep you warm and, um give you uh, uh, something to eat and give you a chance to start making plans if you want to, to get into a different, more stable situation. And, uh, you know, we learned a lot along the way. You know, we certainly um, didn't know everything that we needed to know and that we know now about how to engage folks who have different challenges in their life. But, you know, we you know, been keep kept doing it for 35 years. And Oh, about uh, five years into that, we started noticing that, you know, a significant number of the people we dealt with, you know, that one of the big disruptive um, things in their life was substance use, um, particularly IV drug use. And we were still um, in the midst of the HIV um, crisis. Not that it's disappeared, but it's certainly the situation has gotten better for at least here in the United States. And, uh, some people in the uh, public health community were trying to get syringe exchanges cited in Cambridge and Somerville and surrounding communities. And for some reason, nobody um, was willing to cite a place, a, a syringe exchange in the Harvard Square area. So, you know, similarly to the thinking we had when we opened the shelter, we were like, well, how can we tell the people we care about and make it clear that we're serious, that their well-being is as important to us as our own? 
if we don't help them um, change their behavior and, and have an opportunity to move in a more healthy direction. So we agreed to host um, a syringe exchange in the building um, for, uh, I can't remember which day of the week it was, it was quite a while ago, but we, I think it was a, every Wednesday and folks from Cambridge Cares About AIDS uh, would come and uh, set up a table and, you know, they had supplies of uh, syringes and, you know, wipes, those kinds of things. And people, uh, they showed up pretty quick. Uh, maybe it was uh, because they knew the church was already doing stuff for homeless folks, but uh, there was a lo lot of traffic and we had it there um, for, I I'm going to say about five years. They eventually found a site in Central Square where they were able to um, offer more services and so they decided that they wouldn't, they didn't need to use the, um, the, the Wednesday night space we made available. But, uh, you know, I, I wasn't there at the time, but, you know, people were, you know, Narcaned uh, when they went there. So and we, you know, make that information known. And people say, well, why do you do all these things? And um, we said, well, there was a person whose life was saved because we hosted a, a syringe exchange. And the person working at the syringe exchange was able to use um, Narcan to, to revive someone. And uh, it's, it should be consistent with the, the mission of the church to, you know, to save lives and, and communicate to people that their lives have dignity, um, irrespective of what the challenges they are dealing with at any one moment in their life. And uh, similarly, when we were, um, we were trying to help deal with the situation that took place once uh, Mayor Walsh shut down the Long Island Bridge back in what, 2014. Uh, there was like over 600 people in shelters and rehabilitation programs out there were just, you know, told they couldn't stay there anymore. And they were dumped into the, um, the sort of mass and cast area of Boston. And, you know, there's really, they got them into, you know, like garages, they set up temporary shelters and garages and um, a city owned um, health club, but there was no, you know, coherent plan of services. So we had um, teams, we'd go out and try to provide some basic assistance to people uh, while all this was going on. And, you know, once again, we came into contact with people who it was clear that, you know, the biggest disruptive thing in their life was that they had this issue with substance use and um, they weren't able to, you know, consume their drugs in a safe way and that, you know, the best way we could um, help them, you know, start the process of becoming reintegrated into the community was to make it more, uh, less difficult for them to, to use drugs and risk dying. And so we uh, joined with others to start a group called Safe Injection Facilities for Massachusetts Now. We just call it SIFMA now. And, you know, we've been, like I said, for seven, eight years, we've been trying to get legislation through the, the state um, Senate and the House, uh, at least give the, the governor at the time, Baker, a chance to maybe say, well, OK, the, you know, the, the House and the, the Senate passed it. You know, I don't want to be the person who um, said, no, we're not going to save people's lives. We're going to let them die behind dumpsters in the backs of cars. But, you know, we could even get the legislature to to push it forward, um, to even just embarrass the governor. Um, so I, as a, I'm 68, you know, I, I get really discouraged about um, how our communities regard people who aren't like them. You know, it's like, 
if you don't have a credit card in your wallet and you can't participate in a consumer culture, um, then, you know, if we can, maybe we'll do something for you, but we're not going to put ourselves out. You know, if it's going to cost us anything, um, we're, we're not interested in doing it. And uh, I know the community that I'm a part of, we feel like we have to sort of show an example of how other, uh, how people can be dealt with other than as just, um, you know, surplus humanity, you know? It often seems like a lot of institutions and organizations, they just think that poor and homeless and substance dependent people are, they're just, like I said, just extra people who aren't really necessary. And so, um, you know, we, we, we'll push them into big shelters like um, Pine Street or uh, Southampton Street in Boston, or, you know, we'll, you know, have some syringe exchanges, uh, but we're, we're not basically overly concerned what happens to these folks because we don't see them as part of the world that we're in and that we consider important. And I know um, groups like uh, Team Sharing and others, um, they understand that we have to do things differently. We have to, you know, stand up and say, hey, these are people we care about. And of course, with Team Sharing, which you know, uh, about, you know, these are people who have been related to and lost um, loved ones who've um, had this issue, you know, sort of eating away at their life. And uh, we that's why we do things like we did on the 12th of April. We went up there and even though we couldn't corner her, if you will, we were trying to send a message to Governor uh, Healy and to the legislature that, you know, human life, all human life matters. You know, we can't just say, Oh yes, it's important that we help the, preserve the lives of these people from uh, El Salvador, or you know. And I'm all for doing that. I'm not saying they shouldn't be helped, but uh, all lives matter. And we can't just say, "Well, yeah, it's too bad that these people are expiring on the street because they're uh, they have complex psychiatric problems or they have a substance use disorder." That it's just the price we pay for having the kind of culture we have. And, we, we don't go with that. We, we think we have to challenge all the uh, organizations, all the communities that we're a part of or, or located in to, to rethink that. Like, what does it say about us as people that we're willing to regard, you know, 2,000 people every year is just, well, well, too bad, but, you know, they're not really part of the community we care about. And that, that, that shouldn't be possible for, especially for a, uh, an entity that calls itself the Commonwealth, right? We shouldn't be able to say, yeah, but these 2,300 people, doesn't matter. You know, we can we can toss them aside and uh, maybe something will happen down the road that'll help them, but we're not going to address it on a priority basis. Well, I understand about the about the Senate and the, and the House of Representatives and how long it takes to get a bill passed. I, I have had a bill in there for only three years, but three years is still long, and it's a bill that will save lives. I have a bill regarding the Right to Know Act, which means that if somebody somebody 18 or under is getting a prescription for opioids, that their parent has to sign off on it and also has to be aware that this is a highly addictive substance and that the local dentist is trying to give a 16-year-old a prescription for Percocet. You know, the parent needs to be notified what it is. And it's been approved in 19 other states, uh, including New Hampshire and, and uh, New Jersey, close by states that have approved it. Yep. And, and um, they don't even bring it to a vote. 
No. And same thing, been through, it went, went out to appropriations and there's no cost to it whatsoever. And they still, they still just never get around to it. It's like, uh, what do we pay them for? You know? Yep. Um, and it's, it's, it's the way it's set up, but there's so much power and uh, influence is like vested in like two or three offices in the, in the state government, you know, the speaker's office in the house. Um, they always say, oh, yeah, well, we have a chair of this committee, a chair of that committee. Yeah, the speaker decides what gets to the floor, you know. I um, mean, if you got, uh, you know, all 300 and something members of the legislature to say, we want this, then, you know, the speaker's not stupid. He'll go, okay. But they also have it set up so that uh, like 80, I think it's 86 members of the legislature are either part of the leadership team or a committee chair or a committee vice chair. And they get, they get compensated for that. So I'm not saying people, you know, are bought or, you know, corrupt. I'm just saying it's sort of easier to influence people when you, um, when you're supplementing their regular income with um, these stipends or whatever you want to call them um, for having a, a, a chairpersonship or a vice chairship, you know, and I, I just think people don't fully appreciate how, uh, how undemocratic things are. They think that, uh, their elected uh, representative will do what their uh, community says, says says for them to do. And that isn't often the case. If they want to sort of get along with leadership, they got to follow the leadership line. And if for some reason someone like Speaker Mariano just doesn't like the idea of safe consumption or um, somebody doesn't think it's a good idea um, for parents to be notified about their, their children receiving um, opioid-based pain relievers whether they be in that you know the senate president or the governor then it's not going to happen you know and I, I, it's again maybe it's because i'm old and um embittered or something but i i just think people um could just sort of open their imagination a little bit to think about is that what we want to be famous for that we let you know a half dozen people um on beacon hill sort of decide things that have this is life and death impact on people, right? It's, it shouldn't, shouldn't happen that way. And we, we saw an example back during the, uh, the early days of the pandemic, you know, the governor, you know, and I applauded the governor, Governor Baker at the time said, Hey, this, uh, coronavirus thing is getting out of control. We're going to have to have, um, emergency action. And he used executive power and took steps and, you know, the legislature got in behind him, right? They were like, okay, this makes sense. Um, and, Things happened and, you know, it was not a, a great two and a half, three years, but, you know, a lot of suffering was avoided because um, state government acted and acted in a reasonably responsive way to create a way to respond to this and, and support people um, during those you know ter terrible times and everything was shut down. Right. I mean, it, it, we know what it looks like when somebody takes an issue seriously. Right. We, we see it very recently. And that's another reason why we feel like the governor um, isn't doing her job uh, for people who uh, are affected by opioid overdose, right? She could do something very similar to what Governor Baker did. She could take executive action. She could, um, you know. Well, that's what we'd like to see. Yeah. And, um, and uh, she was very, very helpful as attorney general getting the lawsuits after Purdue Farmer and the Sackler family. So you would yep. think that. But um, she's only been in office about six months, the way I understand it. So 
let's wait. Let's let's see. But I hope it happens soon. You know that yeah, one. Sorry, go ahead. I, I think I think we ought to clear up a few things so that people understand. I'm very familiar with the safe injection sites in Canada, especially in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. um, the CBC did a whole program on the effectiveness of safe injection sites, and I I listened to it pretty intently. And um, the one thing that they found in the city of Vancouver that they were picking up four to eight people a day overdosing on the streets. And it had a terrible effect to the first responders. And and a lot of them were dying. And once they switched over to a safe injection site, 90% um, of that stopped. Yeah. And and what they also the big thing they found is that they have people in their safe injection sites who get a chance to talk to the the ones with the addiction problem and they get them treatment. They get them into a, yep. a recovery center. And in the, in Massachusetts, I can speak to that. It is so hard to get a bed to get somebody into recovery, especially yep. if you're living on the street, you don't have health insurance. That's and, right. And if you don't have health insurance, they don't want to talk to you. And yep. so, uh, so people know if you're, you've got an addiction and you know, a lot of these people that have addiction problems that are on the street, have people who graduated from high school who have a college degree, some of them, yep. they get, they got an injury and the injury, when they got to the hospital, they were given an opioid and eventually they, within a short period of time, they get addicted to that opioid. And then when they couldn't get it anymore, um, because the addiction was running away with their body, they ended up losing everything they had and became homeless. Yeah. And it's street drugs. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Oh, yeah. And I, I don't want to take anything away from Governor Healy. You know, you know, going after the pharmaceutical industry was the you know, the right thing to do. But, you know, all that money and it's built hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. Uh, nobody's seeing any of that money down at the at the level of where people are losing their lives. You know, I, uh, there are communities that are saying, well, if we ever have a safe injection facility or a safe consumption facility, we could use that money. But they nobody none of that money is getting to anybody who's at risk of overdosing right now and you, you would think the governor would have a, uh, a an awareness that you know having a you know an, an embarrassment of riches lying around um just sort of makes it even more stark that we're not able to get the help people need to them in a timely fashion right it's really not a money issue it doesn't cost that much anyway right it's just the simple um public health um program uh that really re returns a lot more than you get uh than you would than you are investing you know it's the, the amount of suffering and expense that you would um you know wind up not paying for um is overwhelms the amount that you invest invest into it it's been that uh, there's a group called the icer institute that does a lot of uh, um, investigations around uh the efficacy of certain types of uh, health programs. And, you know, they, they calculate that just in the city of uh, Boston, there would be, you know, approximately a $3 million um, benefit to the community from not having to have ambulances running around, pulling people, um, you know, out of alleys and taking them to the emergency room. And there's all the, the uh, you know, the services that need to be paid for when people wind up with these abscesses that they get from, um, unhygienic injections and 
it's 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 just if people again people just look at the numbers and engage with the facts they'd uh, uh, they would have a hard time um, saying well no we don't we don't think that's a good thing um, and once again it's because they are burdened and often don't want to give up their idea about who people who use drugs are and what they need to do to get their life back under control. They, they, even if they don't have anybody in their life who's dealing with substance use disorder, they have it in their head that, oh, people got to hit rock bottom. You know, they got to bottom out. Well, you know, sometimes people who hit rock bottom, yeah, they do decide to, you know, turn their life around. But more often than not, when people bottom out, they're dead, right? And nobody gets into recovery. Yeah, so that, it's a yeah. lot different with opioids than it and, and fentanyl than it is with alcohol. Alcohol is takes a lot longer. Fentanyl, you can you can die with with, yeah. with one bad hit with uh, too much fentanyl in, yeah. investing, you know, in the in the heroin. And yeah, and you got to understand that. And that's the biggest thing is this. Too many people that think in their mind, oh, can't they just quit? They, they don't understand how opioids robs your brain and robs exactly. everything that you have and takes over, literally takes over control of your brain and, yep. and you can't stop. And when you want to quit, you get dope sick and dope sick is like being on. So it's like it's like having COVID or having the flu times 10 because yep. you're just sick for days and it's terrible. And the only way you can get stop being sick is by shooting up again and yeah. you know they know that that's in, in, a lot of people just give in you know and and so yeah. they uh, they it's hard it's extremely hard to do especially if you're trying to do it on cold turkey you got to do it under uh, medically assisted treatment and that yeah. that's different and you got to do that by getting taking care of the people who are on the street and putting them in the proper recovery centers and and having Absolutely. you know but again, the stigma, the, the bigoted ideas people have about who people who use drugs are um, just prevents even really smart people from getting it that, you know, this is something that you can't arrest your way out of and you can't white knuckle your way or tell people to white knuckle it. You know, you, um, you, you have to deal with the facts of the situation. And um, the, again, for those of us who have been doing this work for a while, it, it just seems almost um, like we're in some parallel real, uh, re reality that's not connected to the to the rest of the world because you know you could you see this stuff happening in other places and just what 200 miles down the road right New York City I mean this lives are being saved every day you know um, people are given an opportunity to get back connected to their families and to the communities they're from and doesn't cost a lot of money. You know, it, it, it's just sort of like an expanded syringe exchange. Well, that's the way I like to explain it is like, you, you ever been to a syringe exchange? Well, it's a, it's like you have an extra room on the syringe exchange so that people can, um, you know, do something in a, a healthy way and then have an opportunity to think about what they want to do next because nobody has, nobody moves in a different direction, you know, when they're, they're in the ground. Right. And, I just think, particularly people who have loved ones, family members, you would one would think that they would um, more quickly recognize that this is a, a an idea that needs to at least have have a chance to to prove itself, like it has in other places. Because wouldn't wouldn't we all like to have our loved ones with us? Um, 
and, and have that opportunity to um, say things to them that we've always wanted to say to them or do things with them that we used to do with them. I mean, it's a, it's a real shame that people have had their minds sort of colonized by these bigoted ideas about who people who use drugs are, because often the people who are sort of care about these people most um, wind up doing the worst things to the people they supposedly care about because they feel like, oh, I'm not, I'm not being a good parent if I enable them, or I'm not being um, realistic if I don't, you know, set these limits. And of course, we can't let people who are out of control, you know, create um, chaos in our lives. But there's certainly in between things we can do so that people don't wind up um, so estranged from our from our homes and from our families and from our communities that um, they they no longer feel like they have anything invested in those families or those communities. And so they make decisions that are pretty nihilistic, right? Because they don't, um, they don't feel like they're part of the, the, com the beloved community that we sometimes like to say we are, right? We're, we like to describe our, our, our society as a place that values people. And yeah, if you're, if you're sort of in the group that um, is controlling um, how decisions are made and how resources are allocated, well, yeah, it does seem like a beloved community, but you know, there are a lot of people who, you know, they're, they're outside that and they don't uh, they don't understand why everybody feels like everything's so wonderful because they have trouble meeting their basic survival needs. I understand. So, so Jim, let me ask you a little bit about yourself. Um, you you speak about this with phenomenal passion and you you are definitely incoherence. The same thing. right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're you're of all the people I you're you are a very good person to be in charge of this group to try to get this done with your your passion that you have with this. Um, what is your background as far as how did how long have you been doing this and and what did you do before and you know give us a well, little information on Jim Stewart. Well I uh, I graduated from Divinity School back in 1983. Um, I I thought um, I was you know called to a, a ministry that would be based in a local church. And I always thought that, you know, helping people understand what the, uh, what we in the church biz call, you know, the kingdom of God, what life will be like um, when society and all the creation is organized and um, established um, according to God's will rather than our, than the sort of weird ideas sometimes people have. And I, I got a lot of interviews for churches that were sort of intrigued about this, so my kind of zealotry or whatever you want to call it. And I, I made it to the number two slot on a lot of uh, uh, lists um, for churches trying to find a new uh, minister. But it, it always seemed like if the number one candidate declined the position, they, they never wanted to go to the number two candidate. They just reopened the search. So, I sort of resigned myself to the fact that I, I wasn't being called to a, a ministry in the, uh, you know, the traditional um, preach in the, on Sundays and visit people in the hospital kind of way. And um, I had an invitation to become involved with the group opening a shelter up in Salem. It was I, I got it was funded by a, a FEMA grant and not a FEMA, excuse me. Um, I can't remember. I can't even remember what it was, but uh, uh, I, Got got a, a stipend and some health insurance, and we began organizing people in the community to 
you know, identify and recognize the need for there to be a place who've been forced out of their housing and were living, you know, sometimes I'd find people living like in those sandboxes that the public utilities, uh, public works have to keep sand so they can take it out um, and put it on the road in the winter. There are two, two people living in, in the sandbox. And so um, the church that I was working at at the time was willing to um, allow the shelter to be in the basement. And uh, we sort of pushed forward, got the shelter open. And then all the merchants in, in the neighborhood where the church was um, started leaning on the city to shut the place down. And I, I just couldn't believe it. You know, this church was willing to say, yeah, we'll be a, a safe place for people to, uh, to be so they're not out in the street or, you know, trying to break into your car or into your garage and stay there. And you know, just from the day we opened, um, it was just everybody saying, hey, shut it down, shut it down. This is just going to bring, you know, people from Detroit and from New Bedford up here. Once they know there's a free place to stay again, bigoted ideas about who poor people are. Right. And so uh, th they eventually succeeded in shutting us down. And I, I, that made me really sort of dubious about um, sort of working, quote, within the system, unquote, that. Yeah, certain things needed to happen that involved engaging with the system, but um, there had to be a sort of a, a confrontational approach because uh, particularly um, at the local level, um, there's no appetite to sort of take risks. You know, if influential people say, no, we don't want that, get rid of it. They always find a way to sort of accommodate those people who are, you know, the, from the merchants or, you know, big property owners. And uh so we decided we had to just keep holding things up to people and say, is this what you want? Do you want to be in a community where this is allowed to happen? And I, I got a chance to run some programs in Worcester. So uh, we got some programs started in Worcester for homeless, mentally ill people. And then the church that I've been a part of for 30 something years asked me if uh, I'd wanted to help them open a shelter in the basement of First Church in Cambridge. And I was like, yeah, sure. And I figured it would be a, a good way to get out of Worcester and get closer to Boston. And I didn't think I'd be there very long at all, but uh, it, different things came up. Like uh, there were issues with the police, you know, not being respectful to homeless people. So I'd say, well, I'll hang around a little longer to help, you know, get that addressed. And, um, you know, long story short, you know, 35 years ago, um, I like I said, I thought it was just sort of, I had some bridge job and now I'm 68 and um, still working out of the basement of First Church. And um, it's been a, a great opportunity for me anyway, to sort of combine um, convictions I have about, you know, what it means to be a person in a specific cultural tradition. You know, I don't, I don't think it's just because I don't think only Christians have the right ideas about these things, but I think as a Christian, I'm obliged to fight for these things and make alliances with people who think those are good things to do. And I don't care if they're Christian or not. I mean, back in the 90s, most of the people I used to get arrested with at demonstrations were, you know, communists and, um, uh, I can't, oh yeah, then there was uh, act, people from ACT UP. They weren't, you know, they weren't fellow religionists. They were just uh, people who thought it was disgraceful that a certain thing was happening or we weren't doing enough to help people. But again, uh, often people in traditional church work don't have a chance to 
sort of make clear that these are the values that I hold close to my heart, to my soul, whatever. And I've been able to spend decades of my life sort of making it clear that I consider this important and to try to challenge at the local, um, state and national level, people to, you know, think about, is this how we want to uh, organize our society? Do we want, say, market forces? It seems so much now that um, when it comes to, you know, responding to human need, everybody thinks, well, we got to make some alliance with the market. And, you know, markets exist for profit, right? And they're always going to try to find a way to do it cheaper. And um, things that affect poor people, homeless folks, uh, people with substance use, the kind of only way you can sort of extract a profit from that is to reduce the amount you pay to people to do the service. And that reduces the quality and the utility of the service that they receive. So we, we have to have another way to organize and, and invest in things other than trying to uh, mimic what the market would do. And uh, I just think there's a kind of idolatrous um, relationship between uh, our society and market forces and um, particularly in communities like Cambridge, which has a, you know a staggering amount of cash lying around, they have like a three hundred million dollar um, cash reserve. There's really no excuse for the community not to respond to the needs of the people who are, are having trouble meeting their basic survival needs. It it isn't going to break the city of Cambridge to do that. And up until a couple of months ago, um, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts was sitting on billions of dollars in cash reserves. So was it going to break the bank to for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to to help people, um, to help them take care of basic needs that most of us sort of take for granted? You know, um, I I'm I'm gibbering again, so sorry to keep rambling on. So no, but that's that's okay. I love your passion. I love the way you think, and you know, I I, I know I saw a, uh, a I I mean I shouldn't say sorry. I met a woman whose whose husband was. Um, you know, had had cancer. And when she went to the hospital with her husband, she was treated really well. And then a few months later, when her son overdosed and the same woman was back at the same hospital, um, all of a sudden, they, oh, you're the mother of the drug addict. You know, there was a whole whole person, whole change from the hospital, the way they even they, they treated the, the relative. Um, it would it became this the whole stigma thing just gets so out of control and we need more people like you explaining the explaining everything and being passionate about how, um, how, how reality really is working, you know, and yeah. yeah, And there's so many people with so much extra in Massachusetts that, Mm -hmm. you know, and I believe it's when they, when we close them, the mental health facilities, I think that was a big change when, when they shut down a lot of mental health hospitals um, and just turn people out onto the street. You know, it's like, what what, what the hell, what were they thinking? You know, where did they think these people were going to go? You know, it's. They said there would be community-based resources and um, everyone's like, okay, I empty out these hospitals. Let's sell the properties. You know, um, communities don't want to host these things. They, um, they liked it when they could just ship, you know, wacky Uncle Jim up to the state hospital. Uh, I, I, and they, they weren't great places. I used to work in Denver State Hospital when I was uh, an undergraduate. And they, they weren't great places. To, a lot of horrible things happened there. But at least people weren't just left to, you know, fend for themselves in 
uh, on the streets of Salem or Cambridge or Boston. And uh, communities didn't want to have those programs, those uh, uh, halfway houses or residential, because again, nobody wanted to educate them about who these people were. People with uh, mental illness, you know, they, they're much more likely to be victims of violence than to be practitioners or, um, yeah, the, of violence. You know, there's, you know, and, but everybody sees on TV or reads in the newspaper about the, you know, the psychotic individual who, you know, ran through a supermarket and did this. And, and they just sort of assume that because somebody um, thought it was useful to talk about one particular person with a psychiatric issue, creating, you know, a scene in some public space that that that's what people with mental health are all like, you know, and those people wind up, um, they wind up in the criminal justice system, right? Which um, sometimes you hear people who are like sheriffs of the, the county houses of correction. And they say, I'm running the biggest mental health facility in this county. Like I can't, it differs from various, you know, counties, but, you know, they have up to, you know, 40 something percent to 50 something percent of their, um, the residents of their correctional facilities taking psychotropic drugs because that's the big problem in their life. They have a mental health issue and they wind up engaging in antisocial behavior that puts them in the criminal justice system. And it's, that's certainly no place for someone to address, a, you know, a bio, biologically based health issue. Right. So. That's right. I was, was going to say, um, uh, Sheriff McDermott from Norfolk County said that 80% of his inmates in the County prison got there because of, um, addiction to drugs and a drug based, a drug type crime. And, and so he's trying to do the same thing as you're saying. He's basically, he's, um, given a house for, um, for those who, uh, who have got severe addiction problems. And, and he's yep. first one to tell you, you can't police yourself out of this problem. Yeah, it's not going to happen. You know, everybody needs treatment and then they need follow up treatment. Once they get out of the prison, they need to have to go somewhere, you know. Exactly. Um, and I'm I'm old enough to remember there used to be these SROs, you know, like in in Salem, it was the Lincoln Hotel and they were clean, small rooms. They had like a, you know, a, a sink in them and there was a you know a common kitchen and uh, they weren't you know, outrageously expensive, but, you know, people who are, you know, not, you know, making a load of money and, you know, perhaps had some minor issues in their life, they could be sustained in a place like that. But, you know, again, again, because people think that, you know, the market is, is king or God, right? People are like, oh, no, no, we don't need to, let's, let's turn the Lincoln Hotel into condominiums because that's, you know, that'll improve the tax base. And similarly here in the Cambridge, Boston area, there were you know, loads of places in the South End, uh, a fair number in Cambridge that, you know, basically rooming houses. And you could um, you could find some place, somebody a place to stay um, and get them through a tough time there. But now that you know, it's all been turned into, you know, market rate housing and you we wind up having to find places for people in, you know, Chelsea or Everett. And, you know, it's good that they find a place to live. But, you know, the fire that they get from where they know folks and where they're used to getting services, the, the more likely it is that they're going to fall out of that housing because, you know, they, they, they got some issues in their life and they, they can't be expected to just, you know, be um, plot, plopped into some new community without some support and, and all of a sudden just become a good taxpaying member of society. 
Well, you're right on there, Jim. So um, we're just about out of time. And Jim, is there anything that you would like to mention before we go that I hadn't asked you yet? Well, I just drone on again. You know, if folks, you know, want to see something happen, then, you know, communicate to um, your elected officials um, at uh, in all settings, at the local, state, and national level, that, you know, we have to recognize that the substance use <coughs> uh, issues in our, in our society cannot be addressed by law enforcement and that people will not um, move in the direction of recovery if they're dead. So we need to have people um, encourage public officials to support legislation like H1981. That's the name of the bill that would make safe consumption or overdose pre uh, prevention centers uh, legal in Massachusetts. And I'm just blanking on the, the number for the Senate version of that bill. But um, if these people just said, hey, H 1981, support it. No, we, we need to get um, resources out into the community to engage people where they are so they have a chance to save their lives and be reconnected to us. Because, <clears throat> yeah, it's important that we save their lives. Everybody thinks that's, you know, an understandable and laudable goal. But don't we don't we want these people to be back reconnected with us? I do. You know, I I think these people have something to offer and we we'd be doing ourselves a favor by making it easier for them to get reconnected to the community. I totally agree with everything you're saying. I really appreciate your time. And I hope we've educated a few people out there that just didn't understand what it was all about. And that's the, that's the whole point of my show. And this is The Courage to Hope. And we've been listening to Jim Stewart of Cambridge. And, and his, he's on a mission. And he wants safe injection, safe facilities uh, for people in the state of Massachusetts. And let's see what we can do to help the cause. Just get the word out. I thank you again, Jim, for your time today. We really appreciate well, thank you. you. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to, to, to talk with you. Okay. And this is Tony LaGrecker, and this is The Courage to Hope. And we really appreciate you listening to Jim today. Thank you.